Hi everyone! Left to our own devices, the conference may be over, but you can still watch the recording at cybellum.com conference. Tune in to listen to FDA updates from FDA executives themselves, learn about AI in automotive from NVIDIA, the AI leader, and listen to product security leaders from Philips, Honeywell, CISA, and more. Go to cybellum.com conference and watch the recording for free. See you at the next event! You're listening to Left to Our Own Devices, the podcast dedicated to everything product security. Okay, let's go. So our guest today is uh, Thomas Wambera, uh, Business Unit Manager at AVL uh, Deutschland. Thomas is a veteran uh, in the automotive industry, uh, including in areas such as uh, controllers, autonomous cars, and uh, regulations. He's here to shed some light on the upcoming WP29 regulations and talk about uh, security in an autonomous world. So Thomas, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. So maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into automotive security in the first place. Yeah, that's uh, quite easy to explain. I have a background in technical IT. So I studied technical IT. I started end of the 20th century. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's been a while. Initially, my topics were more hardware description languages. So FPGAs, uh, CPLD description with uh, Back then, it was mostly VHDL and Verilog. And um, what we did uh, in my first, in the, in the first companies I worked with, it was uh, more or less signal processing, data processing, parallel processing. And uh, yeah, first topic was actually cracking codes, yeah, uh, using parallel processing in, in uh, FPGAs. Later on, we started with field bus systems. Uh, we did a lot of uh, field bus systems uh, back then. And after finishing my, my studies, uh, I worked a little while with the company and then I decided to move into the automotive uh, industry directly. And I started uh, um, in a company uh, building diagnostic interfaces. I don't know if you remember diagnostic interfaces it, uh, and especially back then, even the plug-in uh, or the plugs to the cars, they were not standardized yet. I mean, nowadays you have this nice obd plug here and uh yeah back then uh it was there you had a set of 20 different plugs depending on what vehicle you were using and accessing and uh, i started developing um an interface for a global oem uh, situated here in germany and i was uh, within this project responsible for, for the basic drivers now and uh, the company they merged with other oems and uh, the job was really full of reverse engineering. So the oscilloscope and myself, we became really best friends back in these days. And so this was, and it really helped uh, me to understand how that do the bus systems function and um, how is the communication protocol uh, evolving. And it was a time of keyboard protocols, uh, UDS protocols back then. And um, it was quite mixed. We had even K-line channels, just level shifter over serial buses. And uh, it was quite funny what you could do back then, <laughs> especially <laughs> with control units. Yeah? Um, so I learned really uh, a lot back then. And after this project was done, I 
had to decide either I become a second level supporter or I join a big tier one here in Germany, in Stuttgart. And uh, I started in the area of the automotive aftermarket back then. And uh, again, the oscilloscope was my best friend. Yeah? Uh, we, we built a lot of new testers for different workshops. And my most interesting time I had uh, doing truck business. So I gave uh, truck companies longer visits uh, really to understand how they work. And I figured out, okay, why do you have such powerful test beds here? Chassis dynos, huge. Uh, yeah, we are doing <laughs> fuel optimization here. Okay, so and there I learned a lot uh, how uh, the access, especially to the um, not only diagnostics part, also to the flash sets happened. They had different technologies really slicing off. The ASICs uh, was the rudest technology yeah, they had uh, and using pin needles and piggy bags to, to really put uh, new ASICs on the existing control unit in a normal truck workshop yeah it's uh, this was uh, quite interesting so and after all these learnings i really got a chance to uh, visit uh, different stages and i joined um, also within the big uh, tier one area um, a company responsible for embedded software basic software real-time operating systems and tools especially for for engineering in the automotive area and uh, yeah there i really uh, got a lot of uh, learnings from my colleagues uh, i really appreciate it till today regarding autosar software architectures embedded hypervisors and so on and i really could make a use out of it unfortunately i ended up more or less in a sales role as of today yeah um, and uh, not working in an on an everyday basis uh, with these topics but uh, after joining AVL seven years ago, um, I did a lot of uh, topics, um, especially with process conformities in the area of control units and all this knowledge uh, I could gain in the past regarding how to validate, how to manipulate systems really helped us to get together um, systems to support our customers regarding revision safety, especially when it comes to type approval processes. And yeah, that's why we are talking. Cybellum and AVL, especially in this area, uh, we are really a good fit. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. You know, some of the some of the people we speak to, they, you know, their let's say their path into security, cybersecurity, product security, is one that you know they they knew at the very beginning they wanted to work in security, but it sounds like, you know, the path that you took, it was just you know learning. And then learning more and more and more and more until you understood everything from how things work to the internals to, you know, where the security breaches might come from. That's quite impressive. So how would you describe um, AVL's role today in, in the automotive industry? You know, you mentioned the collaboration between AVL and Cybellum. How, how did that start out? And, you know, where is AVL positioned today in the industry? So maybe it also helps how I got to, to AVL or got in touch with AVL. I don't know if you if you know these company review websites uh, like Glassdoor or Kununu or whatever. And I read an interesting statement. It said, AVL, the ghost writer of the automotive industry. And I say, what? <laughs> it really sounds odd. Yeah. And after working here now for seven years, I really understand what this person meant. Um, I mean, we are an independent company, uh, which is quite unusual in the industry. We are privately owned, so we are not depending on 
big shareholders and uh, we are really a company coming out of research and uh, especially with our size i mean we are the biggest independent uh, supplier uh, within the automotive ind industry and we come out of engineering we come out of research so this means we really support our customers to develop not only systems we support them developing whole vehicle yeah? and uh, especially this holistic approach is uh, very beneficial when it comes to development processes and how to also safeguard these processes because when you are an independent supplier you have to organize yourself quite properly to make sure that the work you deliver is really taken and uh, can be brought to the market so to really to help OEMs or, or, or tier one to scale up you need a lot of lot of know-how and AVL has that know-how so we have this engineering department which is not only doing constructural work we are doing embedded software we have uh, great skilled colleagues in, in Regensburg at software and functions they're doing basic software functional software we have mechanical guys we have battery guys we have really engineering for everything around we have a second department which is really instrumentation and test systems our third pillar uh, helps us and this is the advanced simulation technology uh, area so we uh, have really profound capabilities and tools especially when it comes to virtual validation or um, also system design and uh, to get that together to find the most efficient process for the customer this is what AVL's value is to the market and especially when it comes to cybersecurity, uh, where you have time pressure where you have legal risks where you have economical risk this is really essential and that's why i'm even a bit proud yeah, to be part of that, <laughs> that funny story because here you really work with engineers and you can do a lot of things uh, you might not be able to do in companies and other with, with other targets than just being good engineers yeah right but it reminds me of you know i worked for a long time ago for trw space and defense and one of the mm -hmm. uh, units that we had there was the auto parts and it turned out i think 30 or 35 percent of all uh, automotive vehicles uh, had TRW parts in them, or 30% or of the cars were made up of TRW parts. And, and also another one, yeah. um, ZF, I think is in the same category, where if you ask a normal person driving a car, who is ZF, or back then, who is TRW, they had to have no idea. Um, and even, even now, yeah. I mean, LG, I don't know how many people realize how many, you know, much of the uh, telestats and the um, the infotainment systems are, you know, where they're coming from. So I think, uh, I think the auto manufacturers are doing a very, maybe a too good a job of branding themselves <laughs> and, uh, the people who are doing all the work to help them to put it together, you know, they're, they're less in the front. Yeah, I absolutely agree. But in the end, it's their brand, it's their, their image. And, and also my colleagues, they are quite proud when they see, oh, there's this new car with the new, uh, 800 volt system. Hey, we did that and only we know it. Yeah. Right, right. I'm actually curious about regulation. You mentioned it and I know you, you're speaking about it a lot. There's no denying WP29 is probably the most important regulation this industry has seen in a long while. I know you're, you're adamant about creating a whole process around WP29 and not just trying to solve it with one tool. So how do you approach it? How do you think uh, companies should approach it? 
unfortunately a tough question with no simple answer. <laughs> this uh, regulation uh, 155 and 156, I mean, those are the essentials of this regulations. Um, and they, in the end, explain um, vehicle manufacturer how they have to make sure that regarding uh, cybersecurity, they have a managed process. Yeah? It leaves uh, a lot of freedom in the end. And um, for me, the question is always, okay, you can have a process. When you are building one vehicle in one variant, it's quite straightforward. Yeah? Where I see the, the interesting part is uh, when you have groups of engineers and we, we do that uh, for quite a long time, organizing, for example, our variant application processes. Yeah? Where, when you have uh, parameter tweaks, uh, the calibration of the control units in order to fulfill specific legal requirements. Yeah? And um, maybe this picture helps us to start with. So imagine you have several groups of engineers working on different topics on the same control unit platforms. Yeah? So you have one vehicle platform and you have time duration of one year to fulfill your tasks. Imagine how much time is wasted just by uh, coordinating maybe 20 people in this process. Right. Yeah? And um, this is just for the pure task of fulfilling, uh, let's say, calibration targets. How does it feel? How does it steer? How does it drive itself? And how is there enough energy for the heating? And uh, yeah, we take energy out for the heating because we would like to have more. Rain. No, it doesn't feel comfortable. It's, who changed my parameters? Yeah? And uh, this is the, the initial question. Who has access rights to what specific let's say, parameters or uh, calibration labels within the vehicle. Yeah? This is where we, where we started. This is not even related to Work Package 29 yet, yeah? but this, this gives you an idea of the problem. Okay, When you organize your process just for the parameter tuning with 20 people for one variant, one variant, usually cars have hundreds of variants, you can save a quarter million euro over one year yeah? just by letting them know and giving them self-service transparency, who's responsible for what. And then you have a managed process. Yeah? So this means you save money, you are faster, and you can always measure what are my KPIs. So these are three pain points. The UN regulation itself is targeting more or less not the way how you conduct it. It gives some recommendations. Yeah? But in the end, we learned uh, by establishing our cyber PLM uh, system where you have really life cycle for Cybersecurity, where you have life cycle also for uh, functional safety, where you have life cycle for uh, also software, uh, software update main maintenance management um, also has to be conducted. And all that three together is, uh, is really the challenge. And this is where you can gain the benefits. So the main challenge with the uh, work package 29 for us was that the processes were not clear from the beginning. Everyone was waiting for the relevant ISO norms to be released. I mean, we were really lucky that the ISO 26262, which is relevant for functional safety, uh, that the working group doing this ISO 21434, which is cybersecurity, that those were quite closely related and the processes are more or less quite harmonized. Yeah? So uh, for, from, for, for me, from a tool perspective, this was really, really helpful. Yeah? 
because now we have a quite similar way to do the essential parts. This is the uh, risk management for the processes. Yeah? And the processes are not only with the OEM. I mean, the OEM has to get the type approval. But the OEM is working with a lot of suppliers. It's working with right. AVL and with tier one and whomever. Yeah. And uh, this has to be, be done. It has to cover uh, not only the development phase, it has also to cover the operating phase. Mm. That's the second point. So this means uh, you have changes over the lifetime you have to track. So this means the engineering group is gone. They are already working in the next projects. And then someone is coming and says, hey, look here, there's a cybersecurity incident. Do something. I don't know who did this or the people are, have disappeared. How to manage that? Yeah? And this is a huge struggle. And in the end, the type approval itself, yeah, uh, also after years, has to be contacted because the uh, approval is only valid for three years. And we still, today, we are not so really sure what will happen <laughs> after three years. Yeah, We only know WorkPatch Package 29 is valid and mandatory for type approvals from July 2022. And this is, uh, <laughs> it's really a tricky thing because it's really a moving target, but it's essential because vehicles need to be safe. Yeah, so, you know, it's really interesting that um, you're talking about all these processes. So there's kind of an evolution that's just starting to take place in the automotive market, right? With autonomous cars and the whole world of autonomous vehicles. And everybody's really excited about it. And there's a lot of R&D taking place now. Um, so, so really, I guess the question is, how do you build processes around something which is constantly in development? So how, how do you see that uh, taking place? Yeah, so this is really... Uh... The core question we are discussing, but in the end, it's uh, it, it, it can be made rather simple. Yeah? You have a kind of DevOps environment for all these systems anyway, especially in the uh, autonomous driving, especially in the highly autonomous driving level four and level five. Um, the uh, It's not just a CI, CD tool chain where you do your daily or nightly builds. Uh, it has a lot more behind, especially when it comes to to virtual validation. So you need to keep track of changes anyway. Yeah. So you have a DevOps and it needs to become an essential part of these DevOps. Also that this uh, CSMS, the cybersecurity management system or our cyber PLM is getting into that process to allow to track changes, mandatory changes to analyze risks uh, over the whole development time, over the whole uh let's say, lifetime, life cycle. Uh, I mean, <laughs> the fun part is really you have to make sure that you fulfilled it also mm -hmm. after three years. Yeah? And um, somewhere there, uh, virtual validation comes into place. And this is an essential part. I mean, no one can tell you how this develops. Yeah, There's too many different ideas at too many different sites. Um, and it's, I mean, this uh, Work Package 29 does not give you any restriction how to implement countermeasures for security incidents. Yeah? Uh, it only makes sure that you find them, that you analyze them, and that you are able to derive countermeasures. Yeah? And um, therefore, everyone has to think about in most efficient way. And from my perspective, most efficient way is getting it into this DevOps, 
and uh, making sure in the during lifetime that you have a kind of uh, virtual approach or digital twin approach, uh, especially to identify such issues. Right. So on that note, is there a, a security tool or method you, you recently discovered that you think is worth mentioning to our uh, listeners? What we learned from our colleagues is that this uh, fast testing, uh, when you do this model-based yeah um then you are in a in a way quite well positioned because you can save a lot of time i mean you can go 90 95% of the of the way you can do with with a kind of functional model yeah you already have where you say okay those are uh teached uh models which help you to come over the first 90 meters of your 100 meter sprint and then the engineer and the security experts they can focus on the remaining 10%. And this, for us, the, the most interesting part to have such methodologies really saving time because we have so much to do, but not enough experts. So maybe um, back to something on the personal side. Um, mm -hmm. So you've had a really, really uh, amazing career so far, you know, from where you've come from and, and the amount that you've learned about the industry and and you know the particulars of of the manufacturing process and and all of its parts so what was like the wow moment the most amazing or unbelievable moment that you've had in cybersecurity world you know that really sticks out in your mind something that you experienced something that you saw you know what would that be Ooh. The most amazing, really, in my early career was uh, there was a book from I think Kevin Mitnick, uh, where he uh, wrote about social engineering, and really, I am convinced social engineering is and will remain the major threat for cybersecurity. Full stop. Yeah, this is really my point, and this is really. Uh, for me, this was really an eye-opener, and it's absolutely true. When we see uh, we have software like AVL Krita, where you have uh, need-to-know basis, what parameters am I able to tweak, and whatsoever. And um, really, this makes sure, um, or this, this excludes so many potential risks already. This is uh, one nice thing. And then the, in the newer days, there was this KLAM hack with the misconfigured server, where the backend was corrupted. Mm -hmm. And um, with an instant, I think 1.5 million vehicles were accessible due to this security hole. Uh, for me, this was uh, in incredible. Yes, this this uh, KLM wow. uh, misconfigured <laughs> server uh, thing. Uh, yeah, uh, but but really, and um, also uh, colleagues here from from uh, my former employer, working with. Uh, multi-factor authentication methodology and so on this is so essential yeah and in between for me as a young engineer um we did brute force hacking with seed and key algorithms and uh, i was allowed back then to have an eight core pc calculating um and i wrote a small uh, program uh, i think it was even already python back then and it calculated uh hashes uh, for me out of uh, the things I've had. And it was quite a successful moment for me when I said, okay, <laughs> this worked out, yeah. 
Um, oh, sounds like fun. Nowadays, it's not so impressive anymore, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, on the topic of social engineering that you had mentioned, so social engineering is quite often associated with things like phishing and uh, maybe even talking to someone in a bar, right? Trying to get information out of them that can help uh, a hacker or, you know, a cyber uh, attacker to get into systems. Do you think that there's the potential of doing the same thing with, for example, open source software where they will build in, somebody will build in vulnerabilities and then put it out there for people to use, you know, almost like phishing, but from the, the coding side. I wonder if that's uh, something you've heard of or if you think that's possible that, uh, you know, the threat coming from that area. Yeah. So my personal assessment. So I've I've not experienced it uh, so far uh, in in the in the real world here in, in our project. But the uh, risk is there. It's imminent even. Um, I mean, this uh, Log4j part now uh, was <laughs> was the most prominent <laughs> example we've had. Yeah. Also, we had a lot of issues uh, to make sure and to inform our customers, uh, especially because it was at the end of the year business. Yeah. And uh, we had a lot to do, and uh, yes, definitely this is going to happen, uh, or this maybe already happened, and we just don't know it. Yeah, uh, I mean there are more than than one zero day exploit. Don't know it yet. <laughs> yes, it's a it's a risk definitely, but to be honest, I think open source is one of the better ways to ensure security or cybersecurity, uh, especially when it comes to specific uh, relevant parts. I mean, there's still a lot of IP, a, lit, a lot of functional IP, uh, mm. uh, intellectual property, which uh, which companies, uh, uh, suppliers can provide to customers, uh, to the end user. Uh, but uh, when it comes to architecture, when it comes to security mechanism, I think uh, joining forces here in the industry makes absolute sense, uh, especially when it comes to proper code review processes, uh, within these alliances, and we see a lot of alliances uh, regarding open source nowadays, and I think this is a good is a good part. But especially also here, the collaboration in these processes regarding cybersecurity needs to be managed as well. So, and managing that over all suppliers, and making sure that you have also checked this, yeah, with every build, with every merge, when you push it to production. It has to be somehow automatically uh, checked and um, tweaked and adjusted uh, just to make sure that there is no nothing happened. And it, it can happen. Yeah? And I'm quite sure it would be beneficial for some black hat guys um, to do that. Yeah. Interesting. Do you have uh, Do you have any practical tips uh, for product security teams in 2022, Thomas? Yeah, uh, I do. In the end, it's uh, it's really a question: How can you make yourself free in a way that you have enough time to keep up with the risks? So right. work efficiently, work smart, <laughs> not too hard, uh, and uh, yeah, because we need the experts, and uh, the experts they follow the interesting job, and so um, product security teams really should make sure that they release themselves from lousy jobs. Uh, from boring jobs, from reoccurring jobs, that they are really able able to focus and keep track with the threats we have in the industry. Okay, Thomas, um, it's been a blast. Thank you for for sharing with us uh, so much of your experience. It was delightful, and we 
We look forward to keep growing the relationship between the companies. Is there anything else you, you want to add on your end? No, just looking forward to it. Thank you very much for your time. And Thank it was you. really good meeting you. And maybe we have a follow-up recording in a little while. Would be fun. was my first podcast. So let's see. Great. Enjoyed it as well. <laughs> maybe we can do it after July to see how WP29 uh, <laughs> actually uh, changed things. Left to Our Own Devices is brought to you by Cybellum. To learn more, visit cybellum.com.